Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I am back this week, a uh, little sniffly, still a little, uh, little bit still going on up here. I can't believe how thoroughly I just got my butt kicked by this, uh, by this flu. But anyway, uh, enough of that. I am uh, feeling uh, much, much better. So um, you may have seen the podcast I did uh, with uh, Nora Crest. Had a lot of fun just sort of chatting away. <laughs> she's, she's really a joy. You just get her going and she goes. And um, so that was kind of fun. And got some great uh, content on, uh, on OT3 and Xenu up this week in my ongoing uh, Deconstructing Scientology series which only has a couple more videos left to go in it, and then we will be wrapping that up. That has been quite an extensive uh, set of uh, videos. So anyway, check those out if you haven't. I think you guys, if you're interested in Scientology, that is a, a must-see uh, set of, of stuff. Let's go ahead and get on with your questions now. Josh Bull. Well done for finding the courage to leave Scientology. How did you learn to trust your conclusions after you left? After being deceived for so long, doesn't it play on your mind that you may be succumbing to other cognitive biases without noticing? Thanks, Josh. And um, yeah, actually, you know, the thing that I was that I was really fortunate about about hitting on critical thinking so soon after leaving Scientology was that you, that you learn that there isn't any right way to think. Uh, particularly. There are writer ways or, you know, more correct ways or ways of analyzing information that may be more valid or more evidence-based and you strive for that. But, you, you know, when, when you learn about cognitive biases, when you learn about logical fallacies, you start realizing that there is no escaping it. There's no getting away from your biases. We are flawed in our thinking in that we only have the benefit of what we have can, can intake from our senses. And that is that limits us, each of us individually, to a to a really great degree. You know, I don't get the benefit of everything you know. I only get the benefit of everything I know. And it might, you know, really enhance my life quite a bit if I knew everything you knew. But I don't get that. I only get what you can communicate to me, what you can relate to me, what you can reference me to or show me. But I don't get everything, you know, the benefit of every experience you've had. I only get the benefit of every experience I've had. And, and even then, with our memories, you know, not being, uh, you know, not very, very good, really, in so many ways, we forget so much, you know. I've been reminded of things that I did in high school, or, or uh, you know, early on in this in Scientology and stuff. And I've just been like, "What? I did that?" You know. It's like sometimes it's just kind of amazing, right? And also, um, you know, we bias our way right out of some of our memories too, because we don't want to remember some of the things that happened to us or some of the things that we did. So, uh, so we sort of selectively, you know, filter what what our own experiences were. Anyway, all of this, the point being of all of this, that it is difficult to say if you're, I think it's difficult for anybody who's being honest to say that they've reached some point of, of perfection or, 
or a, or a plateau of seniority in being able to think about things or, or how one goes about making conclusions or decisions about, about things, right? You can always do better and, and you can always do better because more and more information or, or raw data comes into your thinking process and you're able to reevaluate what you know, conclusions and, and decisions you looked at before when you didn't have that information, you didn't have the benefit of that information, so you could not make as informed a decision or make as, uh, you know, as logical of a conclusion about something because you just didn't have the information or didn't have the uh, wherewithal or whatever, right? So point being that I think that thinking and our ability to conclude and come to rational decisions is an ongoing evolutionary process for our whole life. And all we can really do is strive to be as good as we can in, in, at every moment along our, our path by using our, our brain power, by using the information we have available to us, and by striving to overcome our own biases knowing that we really can't. But, but really trying anyway, you know, and, uh, and we can to some degree. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's all hopeless or something like that. I'm saying that you're always going to be biased by the, um, your experience, your culture, your education, and your emotions, right? Uh, all of these things color every one of our decisions, right? Um, and our language, I mean, and the way we, we think is you know, uh, is influenced by these things. You know, what do I feel like doing today? We don't, you know, we, how we feel. We are always operating on how we feel about things. What, what feels good, you know? This is a, a huge bias for us. So, so, you know, critical thinking, at least when you are working with critical thinking and, and making an effort in the direction of using critical thinking, you're, at least you're trying, at least you know that you're not perfect, you're not gonna be perfect, but you're giving it your best shot as often as you can. You're putting your best foot forward, you're, you're really making the effort. And I think that's really what I've come to accept as the best I can do. Um, because we're not computers, I, you know, we're not logic-based beings or, you know, thinkers. We're not Mr. Spock, right? And, uh, and, and of course, even in Star Trek, Mr. Spock was, was very, very flawed, right? And he knew it. So, so I look at myself the same way, just to get to your, you know, get a, all this faulty roll back around to your question, is I trust my decisions because I know that when I'm really making a, a conscious effort to use my brain power and use every piece of my intellect to try to decide on something, I know I'm doing the best that I can. And... I can't ask any more of myself than that. So I've, you know, I've done the best that I could in the past, and that's one reason why I don't have tons of regrets about the course that my life has gone. I can't, I mean, I can't undo it anyway. But um, you know, I have, I have some regrets on decisions that I made that that I really knew better, where I you know, went with something that I thought was wrong at the time, but I did it anyway because it seemed like the right thing to do. Those are the things I regret. But 
but the overall course of things I don't. And, um, and I try to, because I have a kind of an optimistic outlook on things, I try to, you know, let myself remember that I really have been doing the best that I could at any time. And I think that that is something that maybe we all want to keep in mind sometimes, you know what I mean? There's a thing called hindsight bias, where when you learn new things, you look back on decisions that you've made in the past from, a, you know, from hindsight, and you go, ah, oh, you know, that was so screwed up, that was so wrong, or whatever. And you go, well, you forget that you didn't know then what you know now, including having even the benefit of the experience of having made that decision and, the constant, and having to live through the consequences of it, right? So I try not to let hindsight bias rule my life. So to that degree, I feel I can trust my decisions, and I feel all of us should be able to trust our decisions, as long as we know that we are applying our brain power and are applying our critical thinking skills to the best that we can, and are really trying to think through the consequences of our decisions and actions. And, you know, if you're doing that, okay. So, there you go. Aaron Peters. I found your channel after hearing you on Ross and Carrie's podcast, and since then, I've been marathoning your videos. I love your work. It seems to me like people who have a tendency to blame themselves for problems they're having, people quick to find fault with themselves, or who have low self-esteem, would have trouble completing the auditing required to move up the bridge. Is this the case? Were you in the RPF for so long because you are someone who is quicker to blame yourself for things? I am an ex-fundamentalist, Christian, and because I have a rather low opinion of myself, I was very susceptible to that group's message of God is perfect, you are an awful, sinful creature who needs to be saved by us. I was wondering whether Scientology preys on that same personality trait, too. Well, thanks a lot, and I'm glad you're getting something out of my work. Um, as far as your question goes, no. Um, I think it's actually the exact opposite in many ways. Scientology indoctrination, and in fact, um, a, a lot of cult, destructive cult indoctrination is about breaking a person down and making themselves and their own personality and their own views on things less, of less importance, of, of less, um, you know, magnitude to the person, right? And building up the idea that the cult leader is the one who has figured things out, is the one who understands how everything works, and and, and getting a person to try to emulate or be that cult leader. So there's a personality shift that occurs in destructive cults, and this very much includes Scientology, where people are breaking down their personalities and trying to become more like their idea of L. Ron Hubbard, and to a great degree, David Miscavige now, too, especially within the Sea Organization. A lot of the Sea Org members really emulate and model themselves after David Miscavige. And in terms of the auditing procedure, what you described is what auditing is trying to bring about is a person's uh, recognition that they are responsible for everything that's ever happened to them. This is a maxim in Scientology, is that you are always responsible for your own condition. Hubbard wrote a chapter about responsibility in one of the basic books of Scientology back in 1951 or 52 about responsibility and, and he said that you know your 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 freedom is is um, dependent on the idea or your recognition that you are responsible 
right? For everything, everywhere, uh, no matter what. Even, you know, to, the, to some accident that happened on a road you've never driven on, you know, in a car you've never seen, like you're supposed to be responsible for that, right? And Hubbard's definition of responsibility was, you know, was kind of interesting in, uh, in that it was all about being cause, you know, being in a position of, uh, there's cause and there's effect, okay? And in Scientology, it's all about being cause, you don't want to be effect. You don't want to be at the receipt point of other people's uh, blows or words or, you know, bad ideas about you or something. You want to be cause. You want to be the one emanating, not the one emanated at or to. And you are being, uh, you know, the source of things. Then you're being responsible. This is the idea of responsibility in Scientology, or at least it has a lot to do with it. So the... The idea in auditing is that you have to take responsibility for the things that have happened to you. Um, Hubbard said that Dianetics had a lot of appeal uh, in 1950 because it was all about being a victim. You are not responsible for all the things that have happened to you. It was what was done to you, not what you did, that caused you to be in the situation that you're in. Uh, this is the polar opposite of what became Scientology. See, Hubbard said everybody loves being a victim. And, being a, and, and victimhood is the thing that appeals to everybody because they don't want to be responsible. They don't want to be the ones who are the source of what happened to them in their life. So this is why he said Dianetics was so popular and it was such a runaway bestseller and all that is because it said, hey, bud, you're a victim. He said that it turns out that it should be the exact opposite. And that, and that the whole effort of Scientology was to get people to recognize their own responsibility for all the things that have happened to them. And uh, what they did is what's important, not what was done to them. See, there was this whole shift in attitude. Uh, and this all happened through the 1950s and really got heavy in the 60s. Uh, and of course, when Hubbard you know, started the Sea Organization, that was all about personal responsibility, right? And... Sea Org members, and uh, he defined Sea Org members the same way he defined uh, OT, Operating Thetans, the highest levels of Scientology, which is at cause over matter, energy, space, time, life, and form. So all of this, you know, I'm talking about all of this because this has to do with accepting responsibility or accepting the fact that you're the one who is to blame for all the things that have happened to you. That's the way auditing works. When I did the RPF, just to directly get to your question, you can't get through the RPF if you don't find yourself being the one to blame for everything that ever happened to you, right? So it's not something that prevents you from getting through the RPF. It's the thing that you need to do to get through the RPF. And I wasn't on the RPF for an overlong period of time because I was having some trouble accepting this. Uh, I was on the RPF for an average amount of time, actually, right? It's just a long, beefy program that has all this stuff in it that's, that's intended to break you down mentally and emotionally so that you will, you know, end up feeling like everything bad that ever happened to you is on you, bud, and everything good that ever happened to you is because of Scientology. And, you know, aren't you lucky that you landed here and isn't Scientology the best thing that's ever happened to the entire world? And shouldn't everybody get this? That's the end result of the RPF. That's what it's supposed to be. 
you know. So uh, that's why I call it a re-education camp, right? So that is uh, all part of the, the, the mental and emotional process of Scientology. And I think they've formalized it quite a, quite a bit, to quite a degree, whereas other destructive cults have the same or similar uh, you know, results that they're trying to get of breaking a person down. But their, their methods of going about doing it, um, you know, non-Scientology groups, I think, are not quite as as rigorous or uh, premeditated as, as maybe Scientologies are. Dean Schmitz. Chris, you have a lot of experience with Scientology, but how do they compare to Landmark education? My sister-in-law, a sick girl who was taking Landmark's courses, went into the hospital and then a care facility to recuperate and recover. Her course lead called her in the facility and asked why she hadn't made progress on the project she was trying to complete. That, and with her family's advice, was the last straw for Landmark. She told her lead that she was in the hospital for so-and-so weeks and now in a facility to help her recover. She couldn't have done the work, for that I attest, that was required and they needed to wait. That answer wasn't good enough for them and luckily my in-law had enough sense to say enough. Are there any related parts between the two groups? By the way, I was the only good family member, mind you, I was an in-law, that attended her graduation from her mind-molding experience. Pat me on the back, but my main goal was to support her, but understand the culture of individuals who would take these classes and be told to recruit more. Well, I looked into forum, uh, landmark forum, and the landmark system, and uh, its uh, you know innovator and founder, uh, Warner Earhart, uh, who, of course, is the person who came up with EST, uh, Earhart Seminar Training, right, which was the precursor to the landmark, the form and then the landmark and landmark form and all that training stuff. Bottom line is that while landmark presents itself as a business or tr- personal transformation uh, seminar, right, three-day seminar with a, a couple hours follow-up a couple days later, that's the form, and then they have a whole series of additional seminars and things that they do uh, and there's these get into business they have landmark stuff for kids i mean this is a very very extensive uh, overarching sort of life program um it really did look to me an awful lot like uh, a cult now is it a destructive cult does it de- does it you know develop a whole us versus them sort of thinking process does it you know is it all about raking in you know untold millions and uh, controlling every aspect of your life. I didn't particularly get that from what I was seeing and listening to and reading on when I looked on their website, looked at some of their videos, read reviews of, of what they were about, uh, looked into Warner Earhart himself and his life and how he developed it and how that, that whole thing came about. It seems like it's a very high-pressure uh, personal motivation seminar. Uh, or series of seminars, and they're all, and they are about making money. Of course, they are. But uh, you know, is it in and of itself wholly destructive? Doesn't appear to be. But there isn't anything equivalent to the C organization in in the form uh, or in landmark, and uh, there isn't. Uh, and it's not a religious body. They're not claiming tax exemption for or First Amendment, you know, privilege or anything like that. So good on them for that part. And there's a lot of people who seem to have, you know, gotten something something good out of it. 
I think that the fact that you can't find anything from its members critical of it is telling them. You know, like everything, in other words, everything that I could find on it, Wikipedia page, uh, the website itself, other testimonies, even a HuffPost piece on it, were all promo pieces for Landmark. And, and it was a little difficult to find anything critical of it. So that was kind of telling in that it wasn't there. So I have my suspicions about that. They've obviously gone through to great lengths to try to put out nothing but a very, very positive message, right? And the fact that, you know, your sister was contacted in the hospital or in a care facility and that they were giving her a hard time about not having finished her personal empowerment project uh, is itself telling, right? Because, of course, the proper response to somebody in a care facility should be, wow, I hope you uh, get well soon. And, uh, hey, give us a call when you're done, you know, and good luck. Like, that would sound like a, a fairly rational, sensible response to somebody in that situation. Not, oh, well, it's unacceptable. You haven't finished your project, and what's the matter with you? And, get, you know, getting all hard sell with the person about their, about their landmark project, you know, and it's like it can wait. So that smacks a bit of, you know, uh, extremist sort of thinking. So... Earhart, Warner Earhart, the guy who founded all this stuff, uh, led an interesting life for sure. Um, kind of litigious as well near the end there. Uh, and he developed, and he's you know certainly gotten some enemies, including Scientology. I can tell you this in terms of my experience with Est and Landmark prior to you know looking all this stuff up or looking into any of this after having come out of Scientology. In Scientology, they hate that guy. Uh, and there is actually, there are actions that are taken on people who come into Scientology who have done EST or who have done Landmark or the Forum. Uh, there, are, there are repair, what they call repair actions that are necessary that a person pay for and do uh, to fix their experience with uh, Earhart stuff because Scientology considers it destructive stuff. Um, I know Earhart dabbled in Scientology or looked into Scientology as part of a, a whole panoply of things that he looked at. His work has been described as a hodgepodge of, of various people's motivational works. So I'm sure if I looked into the seminar materials, I could find parallels to Scientology materials in, in one fashion or another. You know, it's sort of a copy of a copy though, because let's face it, Scientology ain't that original either. Uh, with Hubbard having copied all kinds of things and plagiarized everything else, uh, he was far from an original thinker. So all in all, I don't know. I would not recommend anybody go to you know the landmark forum particularly. I wouldn't. I wouldn't endorse that. Um, I am more of a believer in personal empowerment through education, more so than having somebody else tell you what's what. From what I read and looked into with the Earhart stuff, it looks like it's, it's um, the sort of the gimmick or the catch on it has to do with language. Uh, maybe there's some neuro-linguistic programming type stuff going on there. Uh, that would not have been above Earhart to, you know, throw that into the mix. And, uh, you know, so in other words, by remembering and talking about things in the past in, in a different way than how you have been thinking and talking about it, by using different words, you're supposed to create different ideas about and look at how, you know, your experiences in a new light, in a different way. 
So I think that's part of what I gathered is part of the Earhart uh, thinking process and, and transformation process and that sort of thing. And to me, that's just trickery. You know, that's just language trickery. And, uh, you know, what happened happened. How you look at it can change, of course. And, you know, I, of course, be, think that being optimistic is a good thing to be. And I'm suspicious of people who think that there's some system that's going to give you, you know, some kind of a, a personally transformative process. I just don't really go for that kind of thing anymore. <laughs> so, Leo Taxel. I had a question about the L rundown. Did you ever do them? They seem to be a bizarre labyrinth of questions about groups, churches, race, politics, etc. This part stood out to me. 34. Have you ever created a secret society? 35. Have you ever caused trouble as a member of a secret society? 36. Have you ever harmed a secret society? 37. Have you ever pledged your allegiance to a secret society? Why was Hubbard so obsessed with the idea of secret societies for these high-level services? Was it sheer paranoia, or were groups, not CIA, actually trying to get into Scientology, or is it something completely else that I'm missing? Hey, Leo, thanks for the question. I never did do the L rundowns because they are the single most expensive thing you can do in Scientology. And, uh, and I'm talking literally tens of thousands of dollars for, uh, for ev- there's three of these L rundowns and they're not on or part of the bridge to total freedom. I mean, they're, they're uh, ancillary or auxiliary uh, services. But the L's were these very special booster rundowns that were done to supercharge your Thetan abilities, and uh, these were developed in the early 1970s on board the the ship uh, by Hubbard, and he originally meant for them to be done by executives. Uh, Scientology execs were gonna, were got these things first uh, when he was training them back in the early 70s for Scientology organizations, and uh, and they were supposed to kind of, sort of, you know, like an apple core. They were just gonna reach in to you as a Thetan and just sort of, rah, pull out the nasty, horrible, you know, stuff in the middle. And so, of course, they have to do with, uh, with you know, wrongdoings, overts that you've committed, you know, in the, in the far distant past, and, uh, and sort of uh, un- un- unleashing your power by, you know, going in and finding suppression that's occurred in the, in the far past and ripping it out of you, you know. This is kind of the idea of these L rundowns. So... I could probably do a whole thing on them, but I never really have because um, we don't really have the actual Hubbard issues. There's been a lot of stuff put together from memory by people who were trained on them, and uh, that's what you find on the net about them. And it's all very interesting, and I, of course, is stuff I looked into uh, when I got out of Scientology, you know, and going down the rabbit hole and reading about the OT levels. I just, at the same time, I read about the L's because I wanted to know all about those things. Um, and generally speaking, from having, when I was in Scientology, they're highly confidential. Um, but I did talk to a few people who had read some of the processes, and they just seemed to be sort of these tricky, insightful, kind of, you know, look at things in a way you've never looked at them before sort of questions. And you just kind of go, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And it was funny how... There was a phenomenon connected with the L's within the world of Scientology, which was that people couldn't remember them. It was the strangest thing. You know, people would, people could remember receiving them. They could remember going in session, having their auditing, and then coming out and, and feeling, you know, whatever they felt about it. But they couldn't tell you. They said, I couldn't even, 
tell you what was asked of me. I couldn't even tell you what happened in the session. And that always kind of bothered me. You know, like, what, do you, what is that supposed to mean? Because I could remember questions I was asked in auditing. So how is it people couldn't remember what was going on in these L's? And, and people would say, it was like being asked, what's on your nose? You know, and you go, oh my God, I never thought about that before. And, you know, and my whole world just blew up and I don't have a nose anymore. You know, it was this sort of, like, what? It just sounded strange. Even when I was in Scientology, it sounded weird. So, as far as your question about secret societies, you've taken a, just a couple questions out of what are hundreds of questions that are asked on the L's, or at least from what I've seen. As far as secret societies and stuff go, I don't know that Hubbard was obsessed with secret societies. You might be putting a little bit too much into those questions. But Hubbard was obsessed with the idea that people were going to get something out of anything else except Scientology. And so the idea of what are called other practices or earlier practices or things that, you know, yoga, transcendental meditation, est, anything else that people were doing, psychology and psychiatry even, were considered other practices and, and verboten, you know, things that, that you... That you we're not supposed to be doing as Scientology because Scientology ultimately presents itself to, to Scientologists as the one and only thing they need in their entire life. It is supposed to be an all-encompassing thing that, that really does take over your life. Hubbard said Scientology is the one thing that's senior to life because it includes or encompasses all of life. Okay, so if you think about that for a second, that's a pretty startling statement. Senior to life. That is how he expected Scientologists to think about it. So, um, so secrets are things that you're not supposed to have in Scientology. As we've, you know, talked about, uh, you know, even a, a brief look into Scientology will show you that people are expected to confess and give over, you know, the most intimate details of their life. And... So you, you can't be a Scientologist and have something going on in your life that you can't tell Scientology about. This is also one of the reasons why it, they won't accept people who have, um, you know, who work for the CIA, NSA, or any of the alphabet organizations. No, nah, I mean, you can't be a Scientologist because there are things going on in your life you can't tell Scientology. They're not going to have that, right? Not at all. Uh, Hubbard demands total obedience and subservience to Scientology as an organization. So, um, so that's, I think, the best answer I can give you as to why there would be questions about secret societies. Because there's going to be questions about anything in your life that is not Scientology that demands that you keep secrets. So, hope that helps. Time for Flash Answers. Mary Ellen Warner. Which episode of Scientology in the Aftermath were you on? I get this question surprisingly often. Um, I was on the first Q&A episode of that series, and it's not one of the regular numbered episodes, which is, I guess, why it's hard to find. Um, it was Q&A, Reddit Q&A number one. So I guess that's the description to give you. I don't have a link to that episode specifically. It's on AETV.com uh, where they stream it, but apparently this is not accessible in Australia and other countries and stuff, so I don't really know what to tell you about how to find it. I know it's on Russian YouTube, our YouTube or something. 
Um, but anyway, that's the one that I was on, was the first Q&A episode, and I was only on there for a couple minutes. Uh, we shot more, you know, I will say this. I was only I was only on there for a couple minutes, but we I thought the best part of what I said actually wasn't on there, uh, which was where I talked about the fact that um, Scientology really creates a mindset of of justifying extreme behavior uh, for you know its causes, and I really wish that that had made it in there, um, but you know they chose what they chose. So anyway, there you go. Francis Curry. Has anyone ever been considered a past-life Scientologist and taken up a previous person's contract? No, uh, I've never heard of anything like that before. Um, when people are considered past-life Scientologists, their current life is not the same as their old life, and they are leading it you know, newly with a new identity and that sort of thing. Although there are plenty of people who have joined staff in the Sea Organization who said that they were part of staff or the C organization before, you know, and they're picking, and so I guess to that degree, the C org members can think that they're picking up on their past contract, but they have to sign a new one. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. Katie Poland. If people are so brainwashed and beaten down when they go to the RPF, couldn't the argument be made that they didn't have the mental capacity to sign? Sure, but it's a tough legal argument to make because it involves undue influence. And if you Google that as a legal contract or a legal term, rather, uh, you're going to find all kinds of fun and games connected with trying to get that concept into a court of law uh, outside of business uh, matters. So it's a tough sell. G. Salvail, you have mentioned several times that no Scientologist has shown any OT abilities. How can we be sure they are not following the guidelines in an open letter to clears? Just talk to anybody who's a previous Scientologist who attained the level of OT. Every single one of them are the ones who say there are no OT abilities. So that's whose word I take for it, not mine. <laughs> All right, and so we have reached the end of another episode of Critical Q&A. Thank you very much for coming around. If you have any comments, questions, or feedback of a good, bad, or sideways nature, go ahead and leave it in the comments section below. I want to hear from you. I love hearing from you guys. I love your feedback. And I also love your support of my channel, which I'm going to ask again for. Because if you're getting something out of the work that I'm doing, uh, it really is very, very much appreciated and very, very much needed uh, for me to continue the work that I'm doing, that you guys show me some love and support. Uh, for those of you who do, thank you so much. You are the ones who keep me going. Uh, because, you know, I keep roof over my head, uh, the lights on, and that sort of thing is because of what you guys are doing to keep, keep me going. And I really, really appreciate that. And also, of course, if you haven't seen my book, Scientology A to Xenu, uh, check it out on Amazon, link below. All right, guys, thanks a lot. I'll see you next week.